Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. This week on the podcast, I talked to Captain Alex Whitaker, who retired from the Navy JAG Corps after 25 years of service back in February of 2007. Alex came in as an intelligence officer, moved over to the funded legal education program, became a JAG, and like I said, he finished up in 2007 before moving on to Barry College, where he went to undergrad and where he served as assistant vice president for major gifts before becoming the chief of staff and secretary to the board of trustees. He was at Barry for nine and a half years before he became the president of King University down in Tennessee. Alex talks about the state of higher education right now on the administrative side and gives some practical advice to anyone in the military who's thinking about going on to academia on the administration side after they leave the service. And if you go to his LinkedIn profile, you'll find a couple articles he has written that gives this practical advice. So after this brief ad, tune in to my conversation with Captain Alex Whitaker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But we're talking Alex Whitaker. Alex is a retired Navy JAG and president of King University. So Alex, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Always good to be with Navy JAG shipmates. So Alex, I got to ask you right up. Does it feel like you've been out of the service for 16 years? Uh, sometimes it does. Sometimes it feels like yesterday. And it just depends upon the on the day. I mean, I've had a a really full second career that's now gone uh, 17 years. So it does feel like it's been a while, but I stay in touch with many of my old shipmates, correspond with quite a few, and from time to time have seen several, perhaps the most recent, Jim McPherson, who came and honored us by being uh, the graduation speaker here in the spring. So it, some days uh, it seems like yesterday, some days it seems like a long time ago. Now, do you have very many people that worked for you left in the service, or have they, most of them moved on by now? I still have a few that are making captain, which is, of course, something that fills me with pride. The thought that a young lieutenant who worked for me, that he or she could today be where I was when I left, is uh, sobering and humbling just by virtue of uh, reminding me of my years, but it's also a source of extraordinary pride because these are people who I invested in very much, hoping that that would be the outcome. And when that happens, it does several things. It makes one feel good about what one did back then. But it also, of course, gives a great sense of confidence that the JAG Corps that I love very much is in great hands. Well, that's that's awesome. That's a great perspective. But let's talk about you now. You know, I was looking at your LinkedIn. You did not come into the Navy initially as a lawyer. 
No, I was an intelligence officer. I graduated from Barry College in Georgia, came in as a 1630 or 1635 back in those days, and uh, did my first tour after my training in Colorado, which is where Nemitzi was, and after OCS. Before that, I uh, did my first tour in USS America out of Norfolk. I was there about three years, was picked up while I was ship's company intelligence officer for the law education program. And like Hank Molinengo had a couple weeks ago, you came in at the beginning of the Reagan administration. So just when the uh, defense buildup was occurring, of course, we still had the Cold War going on. So those were very interesting times. Well, it was a great time to be an intelligence officer for that particular reason, because it was very much uh, cat and mouse with the Soviet Union back then. When we deployed, we were constantly aware of the Soviet presence in the air and below the seas and on the water, trailed by AGIs uh, as well. So, I mean, it was a very interesting time to be in the intelligence world. And, of course, it was just interesting to be a time to be in the military. When I transferred over from intelligence to law, my father quipped that I had uh, moved from one career of deception to another which was a bit harsh, but he'd been an old intelligence guy himself. He'd been a Russian linguist back in his army days, so so he understood that. I don't think he understood the law quite so much. Well, just to give you some perspective, when I was on Enterprise, which was my second tour in the Navy, we received some of the equipment and documents and things from America, which was getting ready to decom. So that was winter-spring of 1996, because we deployed that summer on Enterprise, which of course is no longer around. And my other ship that I deployed upon, uh, the USS Nimitz is going to, they're talking about taking her out of the fleet in the next four or five years. So I, I look back at those names of ships with some with some fondness because they define my time in the Navy as they did yours. Well, when you say Nimitz is reaching its uh, end of life, that's shocking because of course I, I thought of Nimitz back then as one of the new carriers. I was uh, very, very pleased through a hookup that I was able to have a flag from my shadow box flown over America before she was uh, sunk as a target. That's in my office, and I'm very proud to have that. So, Alex, what was your motivation to moving over from intelligence into the JAG Corps? Well, the skill sets, I think, are similar. And so that was the first thing. So if you look at the, the skill sets for a good intelligence officer, it's the ability to take a a massive amount of data and to synthesize it, organize it, sort out what's important and what's not, and to come to real life practical solutions. It is a problem solving career. So there's the analytical part, which I enjoyed, but I also very much enjoyed the briefing part, briefing flag officers, senior officers, even as an ensign and Lieutenant JG. So those, those advocacy parts were also very similar to getting up in front of a judge. So the skill sets were there. I'd always known I would be heading to law school. Uh, my original plan, frankly, was to do my time as an intelligence officer and at some point get out and go back to law school. And so the law education program enabled me to fulfill that dream without leaving the Navy. So I had the best of both worlds. I could practice law and continue as a Naval officer. So you made the transition and then Based on what I saw in your LinkedIn profile, you had the typical Navy JAG career where you did everything. You did litigation, you did prosecution, you did civil litigation, and, and then international law. What else am I missing? I mean, you seem to have done everything. You were overseas, and then you did that for what, about 19 years? 
Well, my total service was uh, 25 years. So it depends on how you count it. But yeah. back then, they engineered some sort of change where you didn't actually get sworn into the JAG Corps, as I recall, until after one passed the bar, which in my case, after Naval Justice School, which would have been October of 88. So from then until I retired, I was in the JAG Corps. So that's probably about 19 years. You know, our focus, of course, is transitioning from the JAG Corps. So was it your plan all along to go into education coming out of the JAG Corps, or was that one of many options that you were looking at? It was not my plan all along, and it was actually a document I did in PCO school or perhaps PXO school that actually made me think hard about what I was going to do afterwards. We were told there we needed to prepare a personal vision statement, and I'm not one for personal statements. I think them rather silly one doesn't know what one's going to do, I don't understand why writing it down helps. But it turns out that exercise was enormously useful because I thought long and hard in broad terms of what I was preparing myself to do, not only in my command, but following that uh, in my life in vocation generally on the work side. And there were several things that I wanted to do when I left the Navy. I wanted to continue working with young people. That's the bread and butter of what we do, of course, uh, in the JAG Corps, anywhere in the Navy, we're constantly bringing up those who are younger than we are to follow us. I very much wanted to be part of an organization that had values that coincided with mine. I very much wanted to be in a learned profession, whether I was practicing law or whether I was uh, doing something else, some place where my mind would continue to be a focus and used to good effect its limitations notwithstanding. Uh, and all those things were things that I sort of fleshed out in that document of what I hoped for in the future. So while higher ed was not necessarily at the fore, it certainly fit nicely within all of that. And of course, I had my own experience, as do all JAG officers in higher education, in graduate education. But I also grew up the son of an English professor, so was somewhat steeped in academia just in my upbringing. So it's not entirely surprising that I was drawn to higher ed as I finished my Navy time. How I got there was interesting uh, and unexpected, but it's not an entirely a surprise that I would go in that direction. So that begs the question, how did you get there? And I know that where you are now at King University is not where you started. No. The short answer to how I, I came in is a really, really nice scotch called Lagavulin. So that's the short answer. Uh, the little, the longer answer is uh, when I was in command in Jacksonville, it was as close as I had been to my alma mater, Barry College, a fine school in Northwest Georgia that has uh, the largest campus of any campus in the country, and it has an extraordinary endowment as well. It is a school that has a very robust work program. It's also very fine academically. That was my alma mater. And when I was in Jacksonville, it was as close to my alma mater as I had been in my entire Navy career, about six and a half hours. So I got involved with the Alumni Council there. And during that, got to know the incoming new president. And he and I bonded over a very fine scotch and we hit it off well. And that autumn, sometime around Thanksgiving, I had a call out of the blue. Have you considered perhaps coming back and working here? And that prompted my thinking about how that would fit in. It involved a pay cut because I was moving from full salary into a, a less remunerative career. 
it involved a move. There were a lot of things to consider, but it was uh, ultimately my judgment that this was an exceptional and probably unprecedented and unlikely to be repeated opportunity to start a second career in a place that I already knew to some extent, even though it had obviously changed much over a quarter century. And it proved to be just that. And so I had a great mentor who prepared me for a college presidency and exposed me to almost all the inner workings of a college. So it was extremely valuable. And what did you start out at as Barry? It wasn't president, was it? It was something else. No, no, I was never president at Barry. I started yeah. out originally raising major gifts, very large gifts. And that sounds like a very strange jump uh, from the law to major gifts. But in fact, there is a legal component of many gifts, uh, very large gifts. Uh, so that's not entirely inconsistent with being a lawyer. And the skill sets, the listening, the research, the strategizing of getting gifts, uh, all of those people skills were ones that suited me well. I continued my whole decade at Barry raising large gifts while I was there, but I was after, I think, probably less than two years promoted to be chief of staff of the college and worked as the right-hand assistant to the president. And that's where I got the broader exposure to everything at that college. But fundraising has been a, a constant since I left the Navy. I do it every day in this job as well. How did you find, as a chief of staff particularly, what experiences from your Navy time came in that, you know, sort of pre prepared you to do that job as chief of staff? Uh, that's a great question. An awful lot prepared me for that. I, perhaps most obviously, I'd actually been a chief of staff. When I was the, the force judge advocate for CNFJ, Commander Naval Forces Japan, the Admiral... Uh, there and the chief of staff both left about the same time. And I was put in as chief of staff actually over the captains that were on the staff. I was a, I was a commander at the time. And so for quite a few months, I was chief of staff at CNFJ. And that really was, it was a different kind of chief of staff because it was not an incumbent there the whole time, but it was nonetheless a very good preparation for that. But I would say more to the point, all of us in our JAG career write for our seniors. We have to have their voice. We have to understand how they tick and how they work and what they're likely to do. We have to be able to give uh, advice, uh, including advice that's not always welcome. All those skills that we have as judge advocates, as staff judge advocates, force judge advocates, fleet judge advocates and the like, all those skills are really the ones that I drew on when I was a chief of staff to a president. And how long did you serve as chief of staff? That was about uh, seven and a half, eight years. I was chief of staff uh, to the president there. And was it the same president the whole entire time or did you have a, a, a different one switch out? Same president and he's still there and we're still great friends and keep in touch uh, regularly. Which sort of gives the answer why you decided to move on in the sense that he's still there. Well, that's a <laughs> that's a great question because it was put to me repeatedly as the announcement was made that I had chosen to go to the presidency here. What are you leaving for? Why are you doing this? One one of my colleagues came up and said, uh, you could do this job in your sleep. You know this place better than anybody. This is an easy job for you. You can finish out your career doing something that will hardly 
be taxing to you. And I said, well, that's the reason I'm moving <laughs> because I like challenge. I like new things. And I knew certainly going to a small private college that has historically, as most small privates uh, are, is, 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 has been historically financially stressed. It's going to be a much, much harder job than being at Barry, which has huge assets. And it was, but it was the challenge. It was the desire to do something that others probably thought would be too hard. And somehow we're still here eight years later. What was the transition like going from Barry to King? And I mean, you've been there for eight years. So obviously, whether stressed or not, you've made a go of it pretty, pretty successfully. Well, it was a, without getting into all the internal politics of, of the place. Well, I had to adjust going from Barry College to King, just as I had to adjust going from the Navy to Barry College. And just as one has to adjust going from ship to shore, East Coast, West Coast in the Navy, the Med, the Pacific, uh, those sort of adjustments that can be rather considerable, I had to make the same adjustments, uh, both in going to Barry and into higher ed, as well as going from Barry to King. So King was a very different school in many ways. There were things about it I liked better than I liked my alma mater, Barry. In other ways, King was not as mature as I'd hoped it would be, and I had to to work to change some things here. But I was also walking into a school that had had a cataclysmic departure of a previous president. It was really traumatic. It was unpleasant. It was played out in the media, national and, and otherwise. It was a social media issue. So I, had, I was walking into a place, albeit after an interim president, but I was walking into a place that was still pretty dysfunctional and pretty hurt. And so all those sort of talents one gets in command and in any leadership position in the Navy were suddenly extremely important. You know, how to get people moving forward, how to quit having them uh, wallow in the problems uh, of the past or present, how to get them focused, how to hold them to account, getting rid of some folks that were frankly uh, drags on the organization. All those things had to be done. Plus, I was facing uh, financial issues. Uh, one program, nursing, that today is the best in the region at the time, was about to fail, and I had to shut it down for a year to rebuild it. So there was an awful lot of work when I went there. And it's frankly the ability to make decisions and act on them and execute to solve problems that I learned in the Navy that allowed me to do that. In academia, it's said that it's easier to change the course of history than a course in history. Academe is not uh, particularly well inclined to change, but you have to change and you have to correct problems. And that requires swift action at times and someone willing to do it, but also to lead people and bring them along. Those are the things I faced when I got here. It was really a very, very difficult couple of years when I started here. But that's also one of the reasons I changed, because I want, I enjoy that sort of challenge. And I enjoyed that when I was in the Navy as well. And, you know, looking at that, four years after you got there, you had pandemic come in. Uh, you guys had to deal with that in a higher education setting. I hate to brag, but it was really painless for us at King. I went to a meeting of presidents in February of that year, 2020. And this particular group of presidents chooses the topics when we gather. And somewhere at number five or number six on the list of topics we were going to discuss was this new thing called coronavirus that no one had really thought of. 
Interestingly, a month earlier, maybe even in December, uh, we had had a bit of an exercise at the cabinet level at the school of what if this turned into something like these, the flu of 1918? What if this became really serious? How would we deal with it? And we actually talked through all the what ifs so that when the thing with exponential force blew up, when that happened, really all the decisions had already been made because we talked them through. It became very easy for us to do it. The second thing that was very easy for us was that we already were in the online space. Most of our professors had done that and were very comfortable with it. So whereas some schools, this was a trauma for their faculty. For us, it was a matter of flipping a switch. And so that was that was very easy for us. And we made our goal to get through it and be back in the fall. And we were back in the fall. So we really only had to go fully online for about four or five weeks, uh, March and April of that year. But again, I think that the contingency planning that's part of the military mindset, the Navy mindset, is why we were able to get through that because we'd already planned for it all. Now, the Navy JAG Corps has had a fair amount of people that have gone into higher education. And as I started this interview, I wrote down uh, John Hudson, Don Guter, Mark Nevitt, Todd Huntley, Shane Cooper, Mongo, Tammy Tideswell, Tom Morrison, and John Jenkins. Did you go to any of those guys as you were starting out or for mentorship or informational interviews, or did you just kind of jump in with both feet and see how we land? Uh, I was the latter. Of course, I looked up to Hank and I looked up to Tom Morrison, who was a legendary skipper, was my uh, first JAG, well, maybe my second JAG CO, but the, the first JAG CO I really revered. So I, I, I certainly admired those folks uh, for their leadership, their smarts. I think all of them are well suited. And Don Guter, all those you mentioned, great folks. But no, I, I just sort of jumped in. I went into it, though. At that point, I'd added another degree. I'd taken a theology degree, or at least was m much of the way through a theology degree before I left the Navy. I'm a lay person. I'm not a, I'm not a, a clergy person. So I certainly continued my involvement in higher ed. So I, I had a good sense because of that of what was going to work and what was not going to work. And I write about some of that in my two articles on the subject. Really, you walk into higher ed, I, I just looked today, I, I, there's a list I saw of the number of presidents who are veterans, and the list is only 60. That's about a year or two old. That's only out of the thousands of schools, public, private, community colleges, and so forth. They could only come up with a list of 60 who were veterans. So there's not a lot of knowledge of the military at most schools. And so you're entering a different world, and you have to be very, very aware that you're coming from a different world. So you go into it, you don't use your rank, obviously, you don't have a severe haircut, you, you don't have your shoes polished too well, and you don't use a lot of military jargon, and you don't adorn your walls with a bunch of things that you might hang up in your military offices. You don't do those things because they can be off-putting. And I think there's a prejudice that's born of ignorance in higher ed toward the military because of stereotypes that really don't generally hold true. And I think it's actually wonderful to surprise people by how those stereotypes are wrong. But I was certainly aware as I, I moved into the career that I had to make that transition carefully. 
Well, you you referenced it. Now it's going to be a follow on question, but it sounds like people have come to you and you have written a couple articles about making that transition from military into academia and higher education. So that's been pretty constant, actually. Some have been one-off requests. Some have been more intentional in terms of being a mentor to those who are navigating the process. But it happened so frequently that, and this has been for the last 17 years, it's happened so frequently that I finally did a little LinkedIn article with some of my basic guidance just for efficiency's sake so that I, I could do that instead of spending hours on the phone with folks and then take whatever time I had to, to do more substantive questions. And then I wrote a much shorter version of that article for Military Officer Magazine. And it outlines some of the same things about that you're entering a place that's a very different culture, a very inward-looking culture. Though most would say higher ed is politically liberal, it's certainly in terms of reflex, instinct, and bureaucratic preservation, a very conservative organization, much, much less given to change, much less given to change in the military. That's probably the biggest surprise I think folks would have. I think the view of the military is we're staid and we're rigid and we're we're not terribly flexible, et cetera, et cetera. That's the caricature. But in reality, in the military, everything about your life changes all the time. The people you work for, with, alongside you, the places you live, where your family lives, where your kids go to school, who your boss is, the political mandates of the moment, the tenor of leadership, uh, it changes constantly. And of course, so does the mission to respond to threats and the like. So, you know, you're very well prepared for change if you're a good officer, but you're entering a place where change is viscerally terrifying. So if you think, for example, of the most stagnant, immovable civilian bureaucrats you ever dealt with when you were in the JAG Corps, and we all had experiences with that, if you were in the Pentagon or anywhere like that, think about that and sort of magnify that by a a factor of five or 10, and you've got sort of the basic personality of higher ed in terms of the structure. It's very, very resistant to change. What is the landscape of higher ed now? I mean, statistically speaking, I get about 200 listeners an episode. There's probably somebody out there that has the idea of getting into higher ed in the back of their mind, whether in the next five years or 10 years, if they're a younger officer. But I'm asking a loaded question because you're hearing about some small colleges failing, even large colleges like West Virginia University. I know, for example, it's cutting a lot of its liberal arts programs and concentrating on the STEM programs because of budget losses and everything else. So what would you say to somebody that's thinking about higher education, whether teaching or in a position of leadership such as you've done? Well, it's hard to say just higher ed because you have uh, the Ivies, the elite schools, as well as others that have massive endowments, which sustain them and will enable them to continue irrespective of the macroeconomic situation or the vagaries of the economy from year to year or demographics. You also have public institutions that, though they have to respond to some degree, have protection of uh, law and protection of politics so that the upheavals there are not uh, quite so traumatic. Private higher education, which uh, is very much where my life has been, is very different. Small private colleges, which in many ways I think are the most wonderful places to learn and to work, 
are, are those that are under extraordinary stress. I think my list is 13 have shut or announced they're shuttering since the beginning of the year. It's probably a little higher than that. There was one announced only about three weeks ago that none of us even have on our radar in West Virginia uh, that's shut down now. And so we're all constantly aware of this. So the landscape is is very difficult. Part of this is post-pandemic. Part of it has to do with demographics. So if, if you go down the list of problems you've got, you have fewer students inclined to go to college. That's been a 10 percentage point drop in my state of Tennessee, for example. That's not good. You have students who are looking to avoid debt because they've been told that debt is terrible and excessive debt for silly majors is very terrible, but a reasonable amount of debt for an appreciating asset being a degree that produces a good career is not uh, a bad thing. But that aversion to debt is also affecting folks. And they they tend to opt for publics versus privates because of a misperception that the privates are more expensive, which is not by any means the case. We're, we're no more expensive than our primary competing public where I am because we keep our, our costs low. There is a demographic threat that's uh, coming up in 2026, so we're two years away from it, and that is uh, because of the dearth of babies born during the Great Recession. You add 18 years to 2008, and you get 2026, and there's going to be a significant dip. And although that's very regionally specific, and there's certain areas like mine that are not going to be affected quite as much, because people kept having babies here, the reality is that higher ed's a national market. So if there are fewer babies in Ohio, those colleges will come looking for students in Tennessee. So those are all very difficult problems. Many schools, uh, based upon predictions of increasing or static enrollment, took out huge loans and have massive debt service. My school does not. I have very small debt here. We've been very debt averse historically at this school, but I know schools that have six and seven times the debt that we do being the same size. So that's that's now starting to hurt. And of course, to the degree that debt is tethered to uh, variable rates, it's even worse uh, in this environment. And inflation is killing us all. Inflation is really, really bad in all sorts of ways. So there, there are just myriad challenges. Uh, to try to get through. So none of us in private higher ed can predict what the future is, and none of us can see more than a smaller number of years ahead where our school is going to be. So that's just the truth. So getting into higher ed, if you're looking for a second career, you should just be aware of those challenges. Um, and they're going to affect public and private and, and many schools in many different ways. Uh, doesn't mean there isn't a great career to have. Now, in my article, and generally, I steer people toward administrative versus professorial careers if they're retiring, uh, because it, unless they already have a PhD in hand and have man managed to do a lot of publishing and compete, they're unlikely to come in at a great salary, and they're not going to have career security early on. And it's generally better to enter the administrative side of things leverage all that leadership experience and then do what I do. I teach as well. I teach a class every spring as president. So that's the better way to get into it, into teaching, frankly, from my perspective to someone who's leaving after a full JAG career. But yes, tough, tough environment. Very, very tough environment. All right, Alex, we've been going for over 30 minutes and I haven't given you a platform 
to brag about King University. So if I'm a JAG out there and I have a kid, what is King University known for? Give us a little bit about the history of the university you're at now. So King is in Bristol, Tennessee, about 200 yards from the Virginia line. I can see Virginia right out the window. Uh, so we straddle, we straddle the line. It is not a coal town, but it sort of emerged as a business center for all sorts of things, including coal in this region. And King has very much historically been tethered to Bristol, even though we have students from the majority of the states in the country, we still have a very long identity with Bristol over 150 years. So it was founded initially as a church-owned school. The, the Southern Presbyterians owned it and ran it as such. It is now legally independent. It has a Christian character of a, I would call it a moderate temperament. And it's a school of about 1,300 students, about 600 of whom are in our traditional program on the campus, very much a traditional small liberal arts college, but with professional programs. Money Magazine just named as one of the top 700 odd colleges out of thousands in the United States, based largely upon return of investment. That is a low investment coming in in terms of the price, but high salaries coming out. And that's been, that's been intentional on our part to, to be in that sweet spot. So a lovely place, perfect weather, great cost of living here, great uh, environment, uh, particularly if you like the outdoors, if you like to hike. Wonderful teaching at this school. All of our faculty are hired for their pedagogical chops, for their skills teaching. More than research, because we are primarily, not exclusively, primarily an undergraduate institution. So uh, everyone we hire goes through multiple classes being ranked by current students and faculty and how they do. So that means our, our teaching is, is really excellent. We have a very large percentage of athletes here, which is not what I would have thought uh, would be the great model for school. It's over 60%. But in fact, it's what financially protects us from Tennessee's free community colleges, which don't have NCAA athletics. And we find that typically our athletes, because of their discipline, their time management, the focus of their coaches on their academic careers and so forth, they actually do better grade-wise than many of our non-athletes. And of course, they're getting all those great skills that I just mentioned when they go off into the work world. So it works very, very well for us. But by no means are those all of our students. We also have a third of our students are not athletes, but we do have a high number of athletes. But the relationships are, are really, really good. We've had none of the conflagrations here. In terms of controversies over everything you read in the paper that other schools have, and I, I credit several things with that, just the culture generally at our school is a very warm and welcoming culture. Second is we have a very deliberate, intentional embrace of free speech and civil discourse, so people feel free to say what they think here, which is not necessarily the norm at all schools and, frankly, not the norm at all Christian colleges either. And so that plus the overall Christian emphasis of the school, I think, means that most of the time those debates and controversies are done in, in civil and constructive fashion. That could all change at the end of this podcast and I could have something blow up. But so far, <laughs> eight years in, the cauldron has not overblown and we've, we've managed to get through all the controversies that frankly are becoming distractions and vexations for my fellow college presses. 
Well, that's great to hear. And I know that uh, you have a lot of demands on your time. I've exhausted my questions, but is there any parting shots you want to give before we sign off? All I would say is I'm full of gratitude for my years of service in the JAG Corps, the Navy generally, but the JAG Corps especially, which was by far the bulk of my service. I work alongside just the greatest professionals, officer and enlisted and civilians. I work for just some stupendous leaders, some of whom I mentioned earlier, who, you know, I could not do the job I do today if I had not watched carefully the Tom Morrisons, the Hank Molinangos, the Don Gooders, the Jim McPhersons, the folks that I always admired, and many, many others. I can't name them all. So forgive me if I didn't just name you. But there, you know, that prepared me perhaps more than anything else to do the job I do right now. One of the aforementioned ones had to give some very, very, very bad news to someone. And I marveled at this officer's ability to give bad news gracefully. And the officer said to me, well, anyone can give good news. It's a particular challenge to give bad news. Well, sometimes, particularly in higher ed, one has to give bad news to a student who can't remain or to a parent that is upset or to an alumnus who wishes things wouldn't change or to a, a faculty member that isn't cutting it and you have to say goodbye to them, the job comes with having to give bad news. And I, that's one example where watching the great leaders in the JAG Corps was salutary and beneficial beyond belief. So uh, I'm daily thankful for my years in the JAG Corps. It was a, a splendid career and, at least for me, a, a stellar preparation for career and higher education and leadership in particular. Well, Alex, thanks. And before I sign off, I'll tell people that, as we always do, we always put the link for people's LinkedIn bios in the uh, write-up on the podcast. And if they go to your profile, they'll be able to find the two articles that you penned. And so they, if you're interested in higher education after you leave the JAG Corps, regardless of service, I would encourage you to look up Alex's articles and uh, take the information on board. But Alex, Thank you for your time and thank you for the information. Thank you, Tom, and, and good luck to you and your own career quest uh, as you finish up uh, a very impressive career in the JAG Corps. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the JAG Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.